Right. Yes. Hello? Hello. Hello, indeed. Good. Confirmed. Right. Crosswords podcast with me, Void. And me, Dave. And I guess I want to say, don't listen to this episode? No, that, that's not what I mean, is it, Dave? What do I mean? You mean there isn't anything specific for this episode to be listening to, because it's going to be a mashup of bits from other episodes that you might not have heard before. That's what I mean, yeah. If you're new to Off Grid, don't start with this one. Start with another one. One on our about page, maybe. But uh, yes, we've swept all the cuttings up off the digital floor and bunged them all together in a somewhat haphazard manner. But hopefully lots of fun and facts for you to enjoy in this episode. So without further ado, let's hope you enjoy the bits and bobs that we have got on offer. And let's roll straight into them. Hello and welcome to Off Grid, the Not Really About Crosswords podcasts. Pod- podcasts there's loads of them <laughs> good start good start take two bees um, i sometimes go to a small festival held on a farm and at least a couple of times there's been an event where suddenly there's a swarm of bees traveling past presumably being led by a, a queen to find a new hive oh well that, 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 that's a that's a fallacy there the queen does not lead them she just goes okay, off with all the rest queen. Um, right. The queen is an egg-laying machine. That's all she does. And all of the other bees basically control everything else. So the queen is a passive slave. Yeah, well, a couple of times we've seen this swarm arrive and go and sit in a tree or on on top of a chimney. But the farmer in question knows a person to phone up and say, can you come over again? They're doing it again. Come and collect them. <laughs> Collecting a swarm is fascinating. You just get a cardboard box and shake them into it and... Yeah, it, it, yeah, I filmed it happening once, and yeah, that's pretty much what it looks like. Yeah, it's really good fun. I... Yeah, before I do it, you just made me think of a Peanuts cartoon. Oh yeah, and I, I managed to search for it on Google. I've just found it. It's it's um, Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy, and they're they're standing there, and Lucy says, "Aren't the clouds beautiful? They look like big balls of cotton." I could lie here all day and watch them drift by. If if you use your imagination, you can see lots of things in the cloud formations. What do you think you see, Linus? Well, those clouds up there look to me like the map of the British Honduras on the Caribbean. <laughs> and, and that cloud up there looks a little like the profile of Thomas Eakins, the famous painter and sculptor. <laughs> and Charlie Brown's are beginning to look a bit more baffled. And that, that group of clouds over there gives me the impression of the stoning of Stephen. I can, I can see the Apostle Paul standing there to one side. <laughs> And Lucy says, uh-huh, that's, that's very good. What do you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? He says, well, I was, was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I feel rather like that with the um, <laughs> with what I was going to say about my clue. Because uh, <laughs> you've, you've gone back to the history of Native American Indians and things like that. And I, I, I just like the wordplay. <laughs> that's fine you don't have to have reasons for liking oh God, uh, yes I'll, I'll give you a ducky and a horsey clue so um while you're thinking about faust there there is a um fabulous fabulous randy newman version of the musical faust all oh, right he, he wrote the libretto for it it's really weird 
James Taylor plays God. Randy Newman plays the devil. <laughs> Elton John and Bonnie Raitt are angels. And at one point, there is a duet between um, God and the devil called We're a Figment of Their Imagination. It's just fabulous if you get a chance to go and have a listen to it. Yes. Anyway, sorry. I'm, Randy, I'm, I'm... Randy Newman, very, very witty songwriter. Yes. Oh, I love him. How many types of bee live in hives? Do they all live in hives? Explain to me what you think a hive is. Mm, yes. It's... Or what you would call... Sorry, no, that, that's that's very confrontational. What you would call a hive. <laughs> well, I think your question was framed correctly because it is a hive a man-made structure for keeping bees in? Or is back, it... Back to chambers. A yeah. hive is a box or basket in which bees live or a colony of bees. So right, I wouldn't okay. say that I wouldn't say bumblebee hive. I'd say a bumblebee colony. So honeybees right. live in colonies, in beehives or in trees or where have you. Bumblebees live in colonies, which are they make wax. They live in holes in the ground, like I think an old mouse hole or something like that. It's it's about the size of two mm. fists. But only the honeybees and bumblebees will live in these big col- in these colonies like that. They're the only social ones. Ah, right. I grabbed the word enhance from the grid. Because I did. It reminded me of the scene in Blade Runner where Deckard is looking at an image on a computer and he speaks instructions to it along the lines of pan right, zoom, down 10%. Zoom. Give me a hard copy right there. Enhance. Yes, he does, yeah. And then the computer magically enhances the image to make it sharper and reveal more details, which of course is complete tosh because you can't enhance data which isn't there in the first place it's typical csi stuff yeah exactly this made me think of having a look at dodgy science or technology in film or tv uh-huh. because when it comes to the willing suspension of disbelief i'm often not you suspend it only a little way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually, though, that's more to do with ridiculous behaviour or plot holes than dodgy science. People who are doing things only to carry the plot along that they wouldn't normally do if they were behaving sensibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolute MacGuffinry. <laughs> Jurassic Park. So, in Jurassic Park, the whole uh, dinosaur ecosystem is, is rebuilt via dinosaur DNA, which has been extracted from some blood that was sucked by a mosquito that got preserved in amber. Right? You remember that? Yep. So, that's kind of fine. It's it's stretching the likelihood of the science, but you know, it's on the right kind of track, so I can take that. But well, you, certainly, did... you certainly also think that will give you the DNA of one of the species of dinosaurs, the one whose yeah. blood was sucked by that mosquito, but not all the others. Anyway, yes. You are, unless the mosquito was, you know, an omnivore. Yes. He, he liked the taste of several different dinosaurs. But anyway, I was I, having a quick read up on that, and I've read that the mosquito that's pictured in the film is the only type of mosquito that doesn't actually suck blood. Marvellous. <laughs> Oops. Another one I read about which amused me greatly was in Titanic, mm-hmm. where Kate Winslet is floating on the door in the ocean towards the end. Looking up at the night sky. Yeah. And physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson noticed that the stars that she's shown looking up at 
were the wrong stars for the date and time and location of the actual disaster. Deary me, that's taking and, pedan- astronomical pedantry to a level, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, but, but not only that. You were going to tell also, me it was like from the southern sky or something. I'm not sure where it was actually from, but okay. what they did show was they'd, they'd taken a star scene or made one up, I'm not sure, but then they'd reflected half of it. So, so they'd been lazy. They'd made up like a third of a screen or a half of a screen and then reflected right. that to double it up. I mean, why not just make up a whole screen's worth of stars if you're going to? But, I, um, on the subject of Titanic, I did watch a video of, uh, fairly recently that was saying the fact that you can see the ship going down, it's massively overlit for what it would have been. And for the actual people in the water, it would have been pitch black. And if you could see anything of the ship as it went down, it would merely have been a silhouette of it against the sky, and that's all. No lighting inside the cabins? Or not in, not enough to, to see it by, no. Right. Ah. But anyway, about these stars. Um, yes. I, I do get where Tyson's coming from, because I have sometimes noticed star fields in TV shows or films and thought, that looks wrong. You know, I wouldn't actually be able to say that's wrong for that, that is Satan uh, yeah. elevation but you know it looked suspicious to me but you know so what he did he wrote i think you know partially in jest he wrote to james cameron to complain <laughs> and james cameron ignored him mm-hmm. um, like you would but then after a bit of back and forth teasing uh, eventually, in a tenth anniversary reissue, he put the correct Starfield back in. <laughs> so, a, a re-edit tinkering of changing the sky. Yeah, kudos to all on that one. Yeah, very nice. Right, I've got one more thing, and it involves cars. So, picture the scene. Pretty much any film. There's a car chase, and okay. the hero in the lead car is being chased, and suddenly realises that they're approaching a break in the road or a collapsed bridge or something. Yeah. So, what do they do? They accelerate! Mm. And, of course, this acceleration magically gives the car the power of flight to clear the gap, which uh, the baddies then chasing them all immediately fall into the gap. And if only they'd thought to accelerate... You know, they could have magically flown over the gap too. Mm. I was thinking about this and I thought, James Bond's probably quite guilty of this. And that reminded me of a scene in The Man with the Golden Gun where he has to jump his car across a river. So he's driving along. With the penny whistle of sound effect. Ooh, I think so, probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he spots the collapsed bridge ahead. And yeah, so it's just got a bit of a tilt on it. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's got a ramp and it's got a bit of a twist on it. So it accelerates towards this bridge and the car is at least moving upwards as it starts the jump and does a full rotation along its long axis due to the twist in the bridge as it goes along. And I thought, yeah, okay, so that one, you know, at least that's trying to be more convincing with the, the physics of it all. Except then I read up on it and I thought it had just been clever editing. But it was real. I, they I think, really yeah, the, did it. The stuntman actually did that, yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they worked out the, exactly the right speed and angle required. And uh, yeah, so good work, Mr. Bond. There's, and, there's uh, a lot of stuff with uh, stunt sequences that you think, 
that must be special effects or whatever. And then you re- read into it, and it turns out it was kind of done for real. Mm. If you think about the, I think it was in the second Pirates of the Caribbean film where they're f- sword fighting on top of that big wheel that's rolling through the jungle. Oh yeah, yeah. The stunt stuntmen were saying, "Yeah, we we actually did that." They were uh, so one of them was was actually having to step backwards as the other one was fighting him on this wheel. They said they they'd got a, a kind of wire overhead with some sl- slight bungee harnesses so that if they slipped off to the side it would pull them back a bit but other than yeah. that they were genuinely doing that on a massive wheel that they built in the studio and rolled through the jungle so yeah anyway so credit to any directors who do actually employ scientific advisors to make things accurate or as accurate as they can be within the constraints of their film yeah pretty good now i was going to go down the line of why would snails have been exceptionally desirable in ancient times or a particular type of snail right Um, okay you've obviously uh, got access to a fact here go on let's hear it (laughs) well i could link it in with prince who i talked about in an earlier episode because his most famous album was oh you're waiting for us is that the purple right right? yeah exactly (laughs) and I'm going to assume that he picked on the colour purple because his name's Prince. and Right. Because purple being the colour of royalty. And that's because purple dye used to be made from one particular species of snail. But you'd have to collect absolutely thousands and thousands of these snails and crush them all up to get enough dye to dye a cloak. So the idea of purple being the royal colour came from the fact that it was so exclusive. No one else was allowed to wear purple because the royal needed the whole supply yeah, that was available of all these Exclusivity and expensive. So they could have yeah. their purple cloaks. Hmm. I was going to look up more about that story, but I didn't. So uh, <laughs> I'll find a yeah, link for you people. I thought purple came from another creature beetles or something i don't know why. well i mean this certainly yeah um no, that's red isn't it cochineal, cochineal yeah because the french for ladybird is coccinelle isn't it i think yeah of course white white island would be uh relevant as at the time of recording because white island is one of the old names for the island called snake island which has been in the news recently because it was this site of the Ukrainian soldiers sending a certain message to a Russian warship. I'm just white. White. There are two meanings in the OED for white. One is a living being in general or a creature. Mm. And yes, underneath that it says, yes, supernatural, preternatural or unearthly beings. So that's the ghost that you're thinking of. And then there is also... Uh, as an adjective, strong and courageous, especially in warfare, having or showing prowess, valiant, doughty, brave, bold, stout. That's um, probably why they named themselves that. It's yeah. probably that one, I would imagine, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think I learned the ghost meaning from Lord of the Rings. I think there's a white in there, which possibly Tom Bombadil deals with. Oh, goodness me. Long time since I read it. <laughs> uh, how many miles in a league? A league is that like is that like a nautical thing? No, that's 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 land distance, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah it's a land distance. 
Oh yeah, it was. Well, the, I know League from the Charge of the Light Brigade. I think within the Charge of the Light Brigade, they say half a league onwards. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward into the Valley of Death Road, the six hundred. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm gonna, I'm having to base it on that. So I'm having to think how how much further would the Light Brigade go in <laughs> miles? Probably not that many miles. So I might go that for there being. Two miles, two miles in a league. No, I'll go for four, so that half a league would be two. Oh, you know what? I'll say three then. <laughs> yeah, spot in the middle, General, is three. <laughs> three miles in a league. Also three nautical miles if you're at sea. Um, and if you are at I sea... I think you're at sea at the moment. I'm a little bit at sea. But, uh, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea by... Jules Jules oh, that's yes. what I was probably thinking of when I thought it was a nautical thing. It could be. Well, that, I think often people think that that's a depth, but it's a distance travelled. So it's how far the submarine Nautilus travelled along under the sea. While it was so under it was a long sea, journey yes. rather than a deep dive. Uh, we mentioned folklore earlier. If you wanted to travel a bit faster than your marching Roman soldier, you might want to get yourself a pair of seven-league boots, which feature in some folklore tales, amongst others, Jack the Giant Killer. There's Charles... Well, there's Spring Heel Jack. Uh, yes. Is he the same chap? He did He did leap a long way, didn't he, Spring Heel Jack? He is. That's, that's sort Don't of know if he had seven-league boots. But there are also seven-league boots in Charles Perrault's Hopper My Thumb, Terry Pratchett's The Light Fantastic, and Diana Wynne Jones's Howl's Moving Castle. Yeah. So each each stride would take you seven leagues along if you had these boots on. I once saw a documentary do of a French it... clown. Sorry, carry on, Dave. No, no. But what about this French clown? I, I saw the title of the documentary first listed, and the, the clown was called Coin Coin. C-O-I-N, C-O-I-N. But of course, when I watched the documentary, it wasn't pronounced like that because it was French. It was pronounced quack, quack, and he used to pretend to be a duck. (laughs) Hence, that's why that was brought to mind. We mentioned the Hanging Gardens. Do you know where they were? Babylon. Well, we know where they're named, whether that's... (laughs) This has got the feel of a a trick question that's going to set off a QI klaxon in it. Yeah. Of course, we call them the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, mm-hmm. but there has been historical research recently which indicates that they were actually in Nineveh and were mm-hmm. the gardens of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who reigned 704 to 681 BCE. For me, at least, it exposed how few coins I know. Uh, it's <laughs> slot- slotted into place quite early with Neuron. Um, but after that, do you mean slotted into place? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lovely. For in, oh, uh, you don't. You're not going with the Ecu story. Well, I, it's not the Ecu merely the European currency unit. I thought that would was not worth uh, not worth mentioning. If there's something more interesting well, than that, well, it's it's kind of along those lines. I I don't know how much truth there is, but the story was that there used to be an old French coin called the Ecu. And when there were various political discussions talking about a European-wide currency unit being introduced in the 80s, I think, Mm -hmm. the 
European currency unit, abbreviated to ECU, was a suggested name for it. And apparently Margaret Thatcher was keen on this name. And the French all thought, oh, great, you want to call it after one of our coins, do you? Fantastic. <laughs> all right. She being unaware of that coin. She was not aware. Yes, I've just looked up. There was uh, a French silver coin. It's the equivalent of the English crown. It's a 19th century name for a five franc piece. Oh, yeah. Would have been worth yeah, cool. more than two bets then. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of um, unwell animals, question three is also in the US. A study that came out in the journal Science a couple of months ago found that 47% of all bald eagles have chronic lead poisoning. Where do you think they're getting the poisoning from? Ooh. Well, some buildings have lead roofs. Do bald eagles hang out on buildings 40% of the time? Feels unlikely. Feels more like some form of environmental pollution would probably be responsible. I'll give you Polluted a Polluted water. Between okay, polluted water and Dave, I'll take your answer. Oh well, yeah, I, I was thinking in kind of um, uh, lead piping and which would which would be carrying the water. So this fact jumped out at me because the metaphor kind of writes itself. So the reason that forty seven forty seven percent of bald eagles, which is one of the predominant symbols of the U.S., have chronic lead poisoning, is because they're eating ammunition fragments and bullets, particularly in the south of the United States. I was so, deliberately avoiding saying yeah. gunshot because I thought, no, that's just. I know it seems too too low stereotyping the Americans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's true. Um, yeah, fragments of bullet ammunition in the environment and in the quarry of bald eagles uh, means that forty-seven percent of them have chronic poisoning now. Take from that what you will. Mm. Uh, a sad shake of the head is all I can bring forth. I'm afraid. Yeah, I bet there aren't all that many of the American bald eagles as a total population of those. Any uh, uh, now? Do I don't have, have the population for that. I don't no. have the total number to hand, but included in the research was uh, an estimate that there is going to be significant population depreciation in the next fifty years or so. Yeah, so it's um, potentially true that within yeah fifty years, say, America will be deprived of one of its. National emblematic totems, yeah. Mm. One national symbol destroying the other. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking the fourth wall for a second. If that's too gloomy a thing to end on, I have a I have an alternative question three. Um, A cheerier one. Well, it's it's not necessarily cheery, but it's not about (laughs) birds being killed. Cheerier may be more boring though, so take your pick. I had a vaguely similar experience once when I was flying a kite. There, was, uh, there were a bunch of cows, you know, just way heard off of over cows. there. Of course <laughs> I've heard of cows. Who hasn't heard of cows? Hey, <laughs> I'll set them up, you knock them down. Yeah. Uh, but then I noticed that one of these cows was uh, was wandering over towards me and then still wandering over towards me. And then I noticed, hang on, that's not a cow. Oh no! It's a bull. Oh no! <laughs> I very quickly landed my coat. For some reason, I was imagining that it would that it had been something even less bovine that you'd inexplicably mistaken for a cow. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he did. He did sort of keep ambling towards me, and I did jump over a fence with a kite and a 
tangled bundle of lines all <laughs> you gently angled in the opposite arm. direction yes yeah oh, fuck. So, yes. I may have got that slightly wrong oh that sounds, sounds about right sounds, yeah sounds about right to me as well yeah. where's it from it's uh, WH Davies I believe uh, I think he was uh, I think he was possibly a he was either English or Welsh and I now I now can't quite remember why I think he spent some time in America as well but no, he, I can't remember either I think he may have been homeless for a while. I'm not sure. I think he was sort of heralded as this um, uh, as this poet who'd come from a, a very poor background and um, uh, was sort of, I don't know, much fated as, as having this kind of worldly wisdom that came from that, uh, as far as I know. It is called Leisure. I have looked it up while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yes, Here, here's, here's some money for demonstrating the trick that's called picking my pocket and then showing me how well you did it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was talking in the uh, previous episode about appreciating the skill of performers, so I yeah. suppose so... it's in the same ballpark. <laughs> what, would he have appreciated if you had merely given him a round of applause? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not. I remember I was in France and was pickpocketed by this man who um, managed to achieve this by just I was waiting with my wife and daughter just by a pedestrian crossing and this man just came past and just barged into us and then walked straight past us like Richard Ashcroft and just carried on (laughs) and it seemed such a strange thing to do because he was literally barging us out of the way and I felt in my pocket and discovered that my wallet was missing and I ran after him and asked for it back and he was just sort of very openly just examining my wallet. He had it in his hands and he was sort of <laughs> looking through it with an air of curiosity. And then he immediately gave it back, but with a sort of aggrieved air, as if he he couldn't possibly believe that I should suspect him of having attempted to steal it. <laughs> and it was, it was such a baffling reaction that I, I was rather dumbfounded and I just walked walked back (laughs) off with it I'm glad you got your wallet back as well yes I wasn't really expecting to get it back at all anyway a little later in my uh, wanderings around Rome I found myself in St Peter's Square and people seemed to be wandering into St Peter's Basilica and there wasn't Mm -hmm. much of a a queue so I thought oh well when in Rome I'll have a look (laughs) So I wandered in, and I was travelling at the time with five bright pink juggling rings, and they didn't quite fit in my backpack, so they were resting around my neck, because it's just a convenient way of carrying them without bothering to carry them. Anyway, so I wandered in, and before I'd taken two steps, there was this chap in a very smart suit, standing by a pillar, you know, what would you call him? A guide? A bouncer? Security? <laughs> something like that. Official yeah. of some variety. <laughs> yes. And he, and he looked at me curiously and he, with a sort of frown of his eyebrows, he, he pointed at me and then he pointed towards his neck indicating my juggling rings, mm. you know. And he raised his hands in a questioning gesture. So like, what the hell have you got there? Yes, <laughs> yes. And then he made a little frisbee throwing motion as if to say, what are they, frisbees? And I shook my head and I did the universal mime gesture of 
moving my hands up and down whilst looking upwards. Cool. <laughs> Juggling. Right. And you look back at me, still confused. Obviously, no idea what I was on about. What, what you were mining. What these <laughs> were. So, very quickly, I took three of these rings off of my neck and did three throws and three catches and put them back around my neck. And he, his eyes widened a bit and he went, ah, and pointed oh, at me and sort of smiled and nodded. Right, fine. This is a, an un, unremarkable uh, little encounter. But about five seconds later, another one of these guys in suits and uh, as I then noticed with a little earpiece as well, came up to me and says, hey, senor, this is House of God. You not uh, play juggle in House of God, eh? <laughs> I, I just wanted to say, but 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 your friend was pointing at me, and I didn't. And, and uh... yes, I, I was merely explaining to your colleague yes. what they were. <laughs> but I just nodded and said, "Yes, sorry, okay." <laughs> uh, and and carried on wandering around. Lovely. And then the rest of the Vatican and uh, yeah, there's a there's an extraordinary smell in the Vatican. It's a very strong smell of money. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was what I took away from it. I mean, lots of interesting artwork and stuff, but yeah. Surely opulent. All right, so well, it's interesting you mentioned uh, MacGuffinry in yours, uh, because in this puzzle at 22 down, we had the word rope. Mm-hmm. It was right underneath the word carabiners, uh, and I guess you might use the latter to hitch something to the former. Aha! Yes, because it immediately uh, made me think of the 1948 film Rope, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. See, Hitch! Yay! Yay, based on a uh, 1929 play of the same name. So I was just reading up about Rope. Hitchcock was experimenting with this film with um, long, unbroken shots. Yeah. Apart from an establishing street scene that was in the opening credits which sort of shot from up high on a roof. And the camera pans across to the apartment and the whole of the rest of the film is on one set, just this apartment. I think I read that from that point on, the film looks like it's in one entire long take, but there's a couple of uh, edit points that are very sneaky. Not many takes, at least. The cameras at the time could hold enough film for a 10-minute take. Ah. There are... A number of edit points in the film, and he, he alternated between there were ones that are sneaky ones that you try and disguise, like the camera will pan up across the back of somebody's jacket and it goes quite dark, and then when it pans out the other side of the jacket, it's a new cut and that kind of thing. Pan up, but across, across, pan uh, is sideways, tilt is up and down. Yes, indeed, yes, and track is sideways, but keeping the camera still and moving it along, mm. anyway. But there are also three or four just standard regular cuts you know, from one point of view to another. But within that, obviously, um, all the movement was heavily choreographed. They had some of the walls of the set and some of the furniture props had to be moved in and out of place by technicians as they moved the camera around the set in order to right. make enough room yeah. for it, for the motions of the camera. But what I was going to talk about was that it's well known that Hitchcock of course made cameo appearances in not all of his films but most of them uh-huh. and depending on the 
setup of the of the story, some of them it was kind of easier than others. I mean, a lot of them, you know, people moving about cities and things. So you could have him walking down the street behind the main character. I think there's one with with him sitting on a bus next to Cary Grant or somebody. Hmm. But a couple of them, it's quite difficult. Obviously, with with uh, ropes and limited setting, there's not a lot of scope. Some people reckon that in that opening credit sequence, among the three or four people who are walking down the street, that one of them is Hitch. But they're in the far distance, you can't really tell, and a lot of people say, no, it's not him. Right. But the one confirmed... Oh, let me guess. Is he is he in a photograph in the flat? No, he's not. He's... he's uh, if you think looking out of the windows of the flat, right. they, they built a big uh, cyclorama Okay, yeah. A curved backdrop that would show the sky and the cityscape and things beyond. And on one of the distant buildings, there was an elect- a red neon sign advertising uh, a fictional weight loss product called Reduso. <laughs> and the logo of the, of the uh, neon sign had got Hitch's uh, familiar um, silhouette on it. Right. on it, yeah. That's funny. And this same brand, Reduso, uh, was the even sneakier cameo. If you think about an, another one of his um, restricted setting films, even more so than Rope, is Lifeboat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar. What do you see? You talking about the uh, the Titanic and, and and Kate Winslet lying on the door and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Lifeboat is set. In a lifeboat at sea, I think it's during wartime, and some people have been kind of had their ship blown up by a, a submarine or something. Right. Yeah, I know of the film, but I don't I haven't seen it. I don't no, know. neither have I. But uh, so the entirety of this film is set just in this lifeboat. So there's no scope for distant signs. There's no scope for certainly walking past. And in this one, he's got one of the characters reading a newspaper. <laughs> And on the page that is external and visible to us viewers, there is a three-column advert for Reduso. Reduso. <laughs> and it's got the typical weight loss advert before and after pictures of somebody standing there looking very portly, holding onto their trousers, and somebody else yeah. standing next to them in a much better posture and looking a little bit happier, you know, the before and afters. And those those are Hitch's cameo in uh, in, in that one. Cool. Just a last little thing on that. You know how I'm into my film music. I um, yeah. spotted this little snippet. It says, Lifeboat is unique among Hitchcock's American films for having no musical score during the narrative. The Fox Studio Orchestra was used only for the opening and closing credits. And Hitchcock dismissed the idea of having music in a film about people stranded at sea by asking... Where would the orchestra come from? <laughs> yeah. Whereupon the contracted composer, Hugo Friedhofer, is said to have asked in reply, well, where have the cameras come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rather liked that. Made me think of the B-52s. That's true. They played one of the summer balls up here in Cambridge uh, um, a few years ago. Oh, actually, I'm wearing... A t-shirt, which I shall now show you to uh, Dave and the general. Worthless human, wearing an advert for the Scaramanga 6 with a couple of bats on it. Yeah, the Scaramanga 6 is one of my favourite bands, but they also have 
another incarnation as a tribute band in which they are known as the Mock Lobsters. <laughs> and you can check them out on YouTube doing B-52 covers. It's great. It's like a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a joke. <laughs> I... Yeah, so that was my jump off was to lobsters and colour and things like that. And it, it's a fascinating area of study and one which I have nothing whatsoever to do with. <laughs> uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the just differences in sex between insects, for example, are amazing. Um, things like in the cockchafer, the maybug, it has sort of feathery antennae. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember the exact numbers. It's something like on the female, there are six feathers to it, and on the male, there are seven. <laughs> or anten- normal antennae of bees. They have, they're divided into segments uh, along the antennae. Male bees have 12 and females have 13. Or some, I can't remember the exact numbers. It's something like that. Like, well, how? Otherwise, how would you know? <laughs> <laughs> but the genetic control behind that is just astonishing. Genes are weird, huh? Oh, incredibly. Yeah. Very, very strange. Don't um, overthink it. Nobody else does. Americans and dynamite don't tend to work well together. Well, have you ever seen the video of the whale? Oh, uh, yes. On the beach. Yes. yes. Someone deciding to disperse a whale. There was a whale yes. on the beach. They decided to put dynamite in the whale. They put too much dynamite in the whale. Chunks of whale rained down over over half a mile. <laughs> Um, I will I will attempt to find the video and send yes, you a link to it to put on the podcast because it one. is yeah, yeah. The, the commentary on it is a master of understatement. Oh, so they were filming it and the commentating co- the commentary, it No, the commentating is is afterwards. Oh, okay, you're right. Um, but I think it, there was like a news anchor present, wasn't there? Who was kind of talking about? Yeah, I believe his car got destroyed by a falling chunk of whale. <laughs> Oh, we're back to Douglas Adams references again. I wonder, yeah, if, it yeah, yeah. True. Um, I wonder if it will be friends with me. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. quite. So, just looking it up on that bastion of truth, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. It is a few miles from a few miles from a city in Texas called West. West. Yes. West of what? Uh, Texas. West Texas. Oh. Ah. Uh, um, those marvelous. Which is a which is a city imaginative in, names. Which is a it, city in East, East Texas. Texas? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from That's West East Texas. Now make up your mind, sir. <laughs> Mitch Ben's song about it called him. He called it Knut, so it'd rhyme with cute. <laughs> um, if you can find the the songs from the Now Show, I think he did three songs about it. Um, and the first one was an umpa song, which was talking about how we had um, horribly uh, we are horribly concerned about this baby polar bear, um, <laughs> and then halfway through it became a death metal song. The polar bear must die. <laughs> um, Excellent. But yeah, sorry, carry on. <laughs> I once put on a Mitch, Mitch Ben gig. Where? When? What? what were there forty thousand? But was it the largest city in West East? It was very much the opposite of that. Mitch tweeted, I want to do a gorilla gig. Has anyone got a venue somewhere between South Wales and London? And I replied and said, well, I've got the key to the local church hall where we do the jugging club. I quickly fired off an email saying, is it all right if I put on a comedy gig? 
uh, and they said yes no alcohol if you like but yeah and so we did and about because it was all incredibly short notice and publicised over Twitter only we've got about 12 people come in. but you know it I, was I, I did like his song Stab a Burglar which if you're familiar with that one <laughs> to look that one up right yeah Hmm. Reminded me of when I went to a car boot sale and uh, I bought a couple of Delia Smith books, and there were, there were two of them. And the bloke said, "Oh, it's an excellent set." And I said, "There are three in the set," and without even a missing a beat, said, it's an excellent beginning to the set. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be people whose job it was was to go down into wine cellars and rotate the bottles a quarter of a turn each. Uh-huh. And they got very, very good at this and very quick. And why and why did they need it. to do that? Uh, to make sure the uh, sediment didn't the sit leaves. in one place to keep it yeah. moving or something like that. Yeah, something um, like that. Yeah, I think they, that is a job which has died out through automation. I've seen, um, so champagne bottles are... are you have a bottle fermentation in there, and so there's yeast within the champagne bottle, and they're stored upright to start with, but then they have to be turned to be upside down because they then they then freeze the yeast in the neck of the bottle, take the take the crown cap off, which is on the bottle at the time, like a beer cap, pull out the frozen plug of yeast, top it up with a bit of sugar water, and put the cork back in before the rest of it unfreezes. So oh, that's how wow. champagne. Never heard of that. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing process, and the wine bottles are turned from upright to upside down over the course of, I think it's something like 24 hours, using a very specialised rack of machines which does it. It's really, really clever. Hmm. Yeah, it's, um, I can't, is it called disgorging or something like that? That might be something different. But, but yeah, the, the, the neck of the champagne bottle is frozen, and the plug of yeast is pulled out, leaving behind some carbonated liquid wine with a plug of frozen champagne above it neat very clever yeah a little bit rambly but fun all good stuff Uh, sorry i I tend to go off down rabbit holes that is great if anything jumps out at you that i shouldn't have said feel free to to snip it um i'll trust your judgment of what to edit out (laughs) it's better to have too much to work with than not enough isn't it spoken by somebody who doesn't have to do the editing well, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, folks, you have been listening to a special compilation episode of Off Grid, and it's time for us to go. Show notes for this, I suppose, if there are going to be any, will be in the usual place of offgrid.tlmb.net. And you can say hi to us on, well, whatever social network seems to be going at the time, where I'll be at Skirwingle. And I'll be at the Void TLMB. And you can check out my latest crossword puzzle in The Independent if you go to the website and select 30th of November 2022. Or you can check out my monthly puzzles on my blog at tlmb.net slash blog. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, hopefully we'll be back at some point. Bye-bye. Ta-ra. Off Grid is a TLMB production. Hello to our new listeners in Singapore, Cyprus and Jordan. Welcome aboard. If you or any of our listeners would like to help us spread the word, please leave us a rating, or especially if you can, a review on Apple Podcasts, or just tweet about us with the hashtag OffGridPod, or recommend us to a friend or whatever. 
that would be much appreciated in time. Thank you to the Trudy for our theme tune, and we'll see you next time, maybe. I've got sidebars of all sorts of things, but I haven't got that. <laughs>